Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. I'm Bryce. And today, Bryce, we are going to be talking about the epistles of Peter. First and second Peter, we're coming towards the end of the New Testament. Which is really fascinating because now we have a chance. We've seen Peter in the Gospels as he kind of came into his own. And now he's stepped up into the role of senior apostle, leader of the church. And so this is, this is a fun look at the writings of Peter. So Bryce, what would you say if you had an audience and they've never read First and Second Peter, and let's face it, some of this stuff, it doesn't read maybe like First Nephi chapter 1. <laughs> what would you say is the overall message of what these two documents are trying to talk about? Okay. If you read through Peter, you'll find lots of hints that the saints were persecuted. The saints are suffering. Let me just give you a few of those to set the stage. So in First Peter chapter 1... He talks about strangers. I'm writing this epistle to strangers. Now, clearly, they're not strangers to him or to God. They're strangers in the community. They're, they're people being cast out. And then in verse 7, he says that the trial of your faith, uh, or verse 6, sorry, I meant, didn't mean to skip verse 6. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. He talks about a trial of their faith. And then when you jump to chapter 5, he says, he talks about fiery trial. Um, in chapter, or sorry, that was 4. In chapter 5, after that ye have suffered a while. So Peter is looking at the saints' suffering. They're being persecuted they're being hounded. Uh, we know how the Romans are treating them. Even the Jews and many other you know, denominations are, are, are being very harsh to them. And Peter's looking out over his flock and he's seeing that they're suffering and he has a message for that. But his message fascinates me, Mike, because we often think that, that trial are the diversions. Trial are the ro the rocks in the road that get in our way. Let's just get it over with. Let's just get it over with. That that I'm here to progress down this sweet, enjoyable path and that these trials are obstacles. But Or almost like a sign like Jesus doesn't love me. Right. Jesus doesn't want me to have problems. Right. And we'll say, well, what do I do to deserve this? Or, you know, why is God angry at me? And, and Peter is going to teach a very difficult, but profound doctrine here. If you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, Verse 12, he says, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you will be glad also with exceedingly great joy. In other words, the trial isn't a diversion. The trial isn't a rock in the path. The trial is the path. It's the hodos. It's and the it's, way. it's only by dealing with these trials that we really get to refine our character. Can, can I add one thing? Yeah. I love what you say, re refine our character. I love chapter 5 of First Peter, yeah. verse 10. At the end, he says, this is what it will do. And I love these four words. He says, when you, after you've suffered a while, it says, it will make you perfect, established. I'm going to change that a little bit strengthened and settled. Yeah. I love that. In fact, if you if you want advice from somebody and you're suffering, who are you going to go talk to? Right. Someone who's been through it. Yeah. Someone who's suffered. 
And that's the whole point Peter's trying to make. Go back to chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. I like that. You see what he's trying to say is the trial isn't getting in the way of your spiritual progression. The trial is the way. (laughs) That's what you're supposed to be doing. And dealing with it. It's kind of, C.S. Lewis talks about rats in the cellar. He says, if you suspect you have rats in the cellar, you don't go storming downstairs, pounding on the stairs saying, man, I sure hope I don't have rats in the cellar, and then open the door and peek in. Oh, good, I don't. Yeah. If you think you have rats in the cellar, you sneak down really quietly. You flip, you put your hand in, and then you flip the light on and throw the door on, and maybe you'll get a glimpse of a rat, which will tell you you've got a problem and you better hire an exterminator. It's the suddenness of the crisis that brought the rat, that, that revealed to you. It's the challenge that helps us understand what we need to fix, what we need to, you know, what's broken in our lives. And so we need to see our trials as the opportunity to grow. And so in that sense, I love what the Lord does with the Jaredites. Um, He knows they're going to be bashed to pieces. Okay, not to pieces, but they're going to be bashed by the waves. The waves of the sea. As they cross the ocean. And so he asks an intriguing question. If you want to turn there, this is in, I'm in um, the Book of Mormon in Ether chapter 2. And the question is, how do you, you know, what do you want to do so you can have light in your vessels? You can't have windows because they'll be bashed, and you can't have an open top because you're going to be buried. You can't have smoke because the carbon dioxide will kill you. So what do you want me to do? So the question on the table is, this is Ether chapter 2, verse 25, I prepare you against these things, for you cannot cross this great deep, save I prepare you against the waves of the sea and the winds which have gone forth, and the floods which shall come. Wherefore, what will ye that I should prepare for you that ye may have light when you're shut? What do you want me to do for the boat? Yeah. Now go back to verse 24. For the winds have gone forth out of my mouth. So God is causing the storm that I now have to prepare the boat against. But notice the question wasn't, what do you want me to do for the storm? The question is, what do you want me for to do for the boat? And Mike, most of us, when we pray, we pray that the storm goes away. Yeah, please make this bad thing end. Make this bad thing end. To change my circumstances. And the Lord is saying, I don't want to change your circumstances. I want to change you. It's almost like, Please let us have a nice day. Doesn't really develop saints. Yeah, that's right. I love when the saints came to Utah and they said, "Really, this is this is it." And so many times, I a while back read a bunch of memoirs of Brigham Young and some of his speeches, and he said, "This is a fine place for God to make saints." There you go. And I just you know, for a while I read that and I thought, "No, a fine place would be the San Joaquin Valley in California. That's right. Plus, we'll find gold." That's and Brigham right. says, "You know what? We're going to do it right here." Yep. And that's the idea is the Lord isn't trying to change our circumstances as much as he's trying to change us. And so if you read this epistle from Peter, it's all about being holy and allowing your trials to change you and asking the Lord to help him change you. So let me give you a couple suggestions when you hit a tough trial. 
I don't think the Lord is angry that we pray that the storm go away. I don't think the Lord is is upset that we say, Lord, heal my mom's cancer, take my mom's cancer away, or take my problems away. But we ought to throw in a but if not. And the but if not ought to be a prayer for the boat. Yeah. <clears throat> I think we ought to say, Lord, take the storm away, but if not, do this for the boat. So how about make make me strong? Make me strong. Yeah. So um, I was talking to a, a wonderful student the other day who has um, same gender attraction, and hoped that his mission would cure him, and it didn't. He still is attracted to the same gender, and his prayers have been fascinating because he's now saying, "Okay, Lord, if this isn't going to go away." Bless me to deal with it. Um, that was a fascinating discussion I had with him. In other words, I'm no longer going to pray that the storm go away. This is my path. This I mean. is my path, and so I'm going to pray for the boat. So how about, um, Lord, bless my baby that he will get some sleep tonight. But if not... Bless me to be kind and patient towards him tomorrow. There's a bless, you know, take the storm away. And then there's a bless the boat. And if you read the epistle of Peter, what he's really doing, it just chapter after chapter, he's asking us to be more holy, to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Use your trials to change the boat. Okay, so in 2 Peter 1.14, this really goes with what you're talking about, Bryce. Uh, I believe that 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 14 is referring to Peter being offered up as a sacrifice. And so notice what he says in verse 13. He says, Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that I must shortly put off this tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I endeavor that ye may be able after my decease or after my death to have these things always in remembrance. Now, we'll talk about authorship, but for right now, we're talking about this as if, as if it's Peter. And Peter is saying, I know I'm going to die. I want you to remember this. I'm going to put off my tabernacle. And he's owning it. Yeah. He's saying this is going to happen. Now, what I'm about to share with you, this story uh, isn't in the scriptures. But I find it fascinating, I, and and I like it, and so I'm going to call it apocryphal. But I just I just love this story. So, in tradition, in Christian tradition, this is not in the scriptures, but in Christian tradition, Peter's crucified in Rome. Now we don't know when, but we think probably 64, 65, right around that time before Nero dies. Traditionally and in history, Nero's the emperor who has him killed, and two things. There's a story about him being killed, and like I said, this isn't in the scriptures, but in John, right? Jesus says to Peter, essentially in chapter 21, you're going to be carried, and my death is going to foreshadow your death. And so you can go, listeners at home, and, and read that text in John 21. But in traditional Christianity, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter was crucified in Rome, and as the crucifiers drove nails into his hands, uh, Peter requested that the crucifiers turn him upside down. And many of you have probably heard this story. But what a lot of us don't know, and this is right out of the, the, a book called The Acts of Peter. This is not in the scriptures. But in The Acts of Peter, 
there's this huge discourse that he gives when they crucify him upside down. And it's just beautiful. And I'm not going to read it, but we'll put it in the show notes if you want to read it. But I want to summarize what he says. I'm just going to summarize this with my own words. As the crucifiers put him into the ground, Peter then gives a discourse and he talks about faith in Christ. And he talks about repentance. And he talks about how we came down from the heavens and we're born and we're fallen. And he says, just as I am crucified upside down, may we recognize who we are, recognize Jesus as our Savior, and repent and come into Christ. And I, as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of Abinadi. Abinadi in the Book of Mormon, in the moment of him dying, he uses it as a teaching tool. And so in the Acts of Peter, whether you think this is scripture or not, it's a beautiful story about the kind of guy Peter was, that he is established, strengthened, settled. He's seen these trials, and in his dying breath, he testifies of Jesus. And for me as a dad, I thought, man, what kind of dad am I going to be or grandfather um, on my dying day? And I hope to, I aspire to be like Peter. I like that just inspires me. So like I said, whether or not you like the Acts of Peter or have read it or heard of it, we'll put it in the show notes. But what a beautiful story about everything, Bryce, everything that you're talking about. Yeah. And you know, it's repeated throughout the New Testament. I love Paul. I'm going to bring a little bit, bring us back to a little bit of Paul. But do you remember when Paul says, lest I be exalted above measure, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. He says, for this thing, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. Are you in Corinthians? I'm in 2 Corinthians 12. And Paul's praying that the thorn be removed. So again, I think it's okay to pray that the thorn be removed. It's okay that the Lord calmed the storm. Lord, take my mom's cancer away. You know, heal my baby. Whatever, take the storm away. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice. And then the Lord speaks to him and says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul seems to continue, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I think the example of Peter, the example of Paul, is that trial isn't getting in the way. Trial is the way. Is the way. Yeah. And how we respond to those trials will bring our character. Here's a, a man who in his dying moments will still turn people to Christ because trial is, gaining, is, is leading him to Christ. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. No. And that's why I love that. Don't think that some strange thing has happened to you. This is the way things are supposed to be. But be holy. So that, you know, we really ought to talk a little bit more about, you know, Paul Paul says, you are a royal nation, Mm -hmm. a royal priesthood. Be holy. Put on those royal garments. Do the things. There's so many to-dos in the book of Peter that really lead to let charity fill your, you know, add to your faith charity and, and, and grow and become let your trials change you. Ask like Heavenly that. Father to bless the boat and make the boat stronger. Become a righteous person. So be a royal priesthood. Be a peculiar people, I like that. Um, even though we're being persecuted. I like those attributes in Second Peter chapter 1, where the invitation is take faith and add virtue to it yeah. and then add knowledge and, and temperance. I really like temperance as a virtue. I think sometimes in the world we live in, people get to extremes either way, and anything, even a virtue of taken to extremes can be kind of a not good thing. And so I like this idea of a good Christian is temperate and patient and all these things. And we all know people, and maybe we are those people that are having extreme trials. And I think sometimes the tendency, and some of this comes out of the Old Testament, 
sometimes the tendency is to view it as, well, I've sinned. I mean, if you've ever read the book of Job, his, his friends, quote unquote, uh, that's their assumption is, Job, you've messed up. And, and the question of the problem of evil is a huge test to any theological system. It just is. And I don't think there's a perfect answer, but I think Alma 14 answers this, right? With the destruction of the Christians, Peter is addressing this uh, with the Christians and their trials they're facing. And, you know, when, G when Peter was with Jesus, when they passed the blind man, and the disciple said, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So yeah. clearly blindness is a, is a punishment for sin. And Jesus says, neither hath nope. this man nor his parents. Blindness is not a punishment for sin. This man was born blind that the works of God may be made manifest. Yeah. Your trials are not a manifestation of sin, but that the works of God may be made manifest. And this gives you an opportunity. And I, going back to your thought about add to faith virtue, I love the idea of add. It's line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And that's how we make our calling election sure. I mean, you can't jump right to verse four or verse 10 and make your calling election sure without the process of add to your faith virtue add to virtue knowledge, add to knowledge temperance, add to temperance patience. And so this shows that this is an entire process, that life is a process of becoming holy. And we add to our holiness another holy thing until we become more like Christ. You know, not, I don't know how much we're going to get into this. I wasn't planning on it, but in verse 10 of Second Peter 1, Joseph unpacks this, Joseph Smith in section 131 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where it, you know, we learn, and if you read Elder McConkie, that making your calling election made sure part of this is the more sure word of prophecy, which is also used, which is God saying to you, Bryce, you've made it. And I certainly look forward to that day. I don't care when it comes, but I know that I'm not going to get there if I don't have those virtues, if I don't have those attributes and they're gifts, they're gifts of God, but they come from walking the way. Right. And I really think it's an outcome of being settled, strengthened, established. Right and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. If I could just throw one thought in about this idea of calling an election, making your calling election sure, let me suggest that there is a common way that Latter-day Saints make their calling an election sure. If you'll turn, this Book of Mormon has such a marvelous prophecy. If you'll turn to 2 Nephi chapter 31, um, sometimes we stress and we worry about this concept of making your calling election sure and what does that mean and I don't think I've done it and does that mean I'm failing? But if making my calling election sure is the moment where the Father says, you've made it, you're going to make it, then listen to what Nephi taught in Second Nephi chapter 31 verse 20. Wherefore, you must press forward with steadfastness in Christ. That's what Peter's trying to teach. Press, door, stead, press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men. Wherefore, now listen to this promise. It's the only time in the scriptures I can think of where the Father comes down and says, hey, make sure you know that, that my name's on this. Not Nephi, not Jesus. Make sure that you put my name on this promise. I like that. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the words of Christ, and endure to the end. And I think the end here is an implica implication that it's death that if you are pressing forward when you die, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. 
Now, we know from the Book of Mormon that that same spirit which possesses your bodies will have power. So if you go out feasting them on the words of Christ, if you go out on the path, you'll get you home. You're not going to fall off the path in the spirit world. And so for all practical purposes, you've endured to the end of this life. And the Father says, ye shall have eternal life. And there's the promise that the Father says, Mike, you made it. Yeah, get on the path, stay on it. You made it. And so I think we sometimes put a lot of pressure on ourselves when we talk about this calling election, sure. And yeah. I don't mean to diminish any of that because there's some wonderful things about that doctrine. But I just love that statement in Second Nephi where if you endure to the end, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. And the, law, the Father is assuring your exaltation. I love that. That's awesome. I really think that this first few minutes of, of what we've been doing, Bryce, is really the, the most important stuff. There's a lot of things that I would love to talk about with First and Second Peter, about authorship, about some of the textual issues, about the book of Enoch about the temple and they're all good. But I really think if I was with my family or if I was in front of a, a group of students and we were reading this, what are we talking about? Yeah. We're talking about life. That's right. And does God love me? I have this trial or I have this circumstance or, and then am I going to make it? And I, th I, I really love, and we were talking about this the other day where we were talking about sources and what's the best source. As much as I love first and second Peter and it's teaching of this idea about coin election, you read Nephi, that one verse, and there it is. And yeah. it's just gold. I mean, the Book of Mormon is just dropping these powerful truths. And they're taught here in, in Second Peter. So I don't want to, you know, disparage it, but I just think, wow, if I had to pick Second <laughs> Peter chapter one, verse 10, or Second Nephi 31, verse 20, I'm going with Second Nephi. Yeah. But they're both teaching kind of the same thing. Right. Anyway. Um, okay. Well, should I geek out for a little bit? You should geek geek out, Mike. Tell <laughs> us. I know there's so many wonderful references to the temple. I'd love you to share a few of these references. Okay. As well as the Book of Enoch. That's a significant insight into those of you who are, um, are you know, great disciples of Peter and, and want to see. There's a connection here. There's some really, really cool things happening. So geek out, Mike. Okay. So I'm going to try to make this make sense. We'll put it in the show notes. But there's two threads going through First and Second Peter. And one thread is the temple. And one thread is the book of Enoch. Now, we don't even know what the book of Enoch is in Joseph's day. Joseph gives us all this Enoch literature, and we really don't know what this is. And in Qumran in 1948, they pull up first Enoch, and it's been translated. It's all out there. And we'll put some of this in the show notes. What I'm going to reference is first Enoch 6. And in first Enoch 6, it's this discourse where Enoch sees a group of angels and they basically tell God, we're out. We're not going to follow the plan. We're leaving. And they come down to earth, and they're going to be called the watchers. And these angels wage war on man, and they swear by the throat. They literally make a covenant with each other to destroy the plan of God. And they make it at Mount Hermon. And they make this covenant to just wreak havoc. And I believe that Jesus and Peter and whoever wrote Jude... And whoever wrote Revelation, John the Revelator, all of these authors and speakers totally know the, the book of Enoch. And in, in scholarship, it's called uh, Second Temple Literature. It was textualized probably between 200 and 150 BC, but the stuff in Enoch is way old. And the reason why is because the stuff that these watchers do, where they try to wreak havoc on the earth, and the sin that they try to get mankind to get involved with, are the same sins that Isaiah is picking at. 
And so if you understand Isaiah, Isaiah is way, you know, 8th century BC. And so even though the text of Enoch is 2nd century, my point is it's coming from somewhere. This stuff's really old. I, I, I say this a lot when I teach students and we talk about, I'll use Star Wars as an analogy. And I say, George Lucas didn't just come up with this. Like the ideas in Star Wars are really old. And if you've ever read Greek mythology or the Bible, or, then you know that this stuff's really old. So they make this covenant, they make it at Mount Hermon, and they say, we're just going to mess up Heavenly Father's plan. And they're just so angry. And they're like, we're going to get him. Well, what I find ironic is Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is where Jesus says, who am I? And the disciples say, well, you know, some say you're this and some say you're that. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And that all happens at Caesarea Philippi or what today is called Banias. And Banias is at the foot of Mount Hermon. And so I'm just going to say what I think. And I think that the Mount of Transfiguration in the next chapter, Matthew 17, is on Mount Hermon which it just fits as a type. If you're going to tell a story, an epic play or an epic story, you have Jesus, God's son, on the very place where the bad guys say, we're going to wreck, wreak havoc on God's kids. Jesus is transfigured. He gives the keys to his guys, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus says, no, I'm the captain. I'm the captain. I'm in charge. And if you understand the book of Enoch and you understand uh, what the idea of what scripture is, a lot of times scripture is a polemic. It's an attack against your enemy. And so Jesus is essentially throwing down the gauntlet saying, no, Satan, I'm in charge. I'm the captain. I'm in charge. And so that's happening at Mount Hermon. Well, back to the watchers. And this is where it gets a little weird, listeners. So bear with me. But this is everywhere, especially when we do Old Testament. If you've ever read the Old Testament and you're like, what is going on? with these giants. What's going on with the description of these enemies? What's the deal with Og's bed? Why is it so big? I don't understand what's going on. And is this literal? Were there really giants? So here we go. The author of, of Peter is going to tie in the sin of the giants with immorality. So I'm just going to read this. Okay, first we're going to do 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 2, here it is. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Here it is. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the world, or the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of sin and Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and deliver just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Okay, so that's the text. What's going on? First, you've got to get into the word. The word in verse 4 for hell isn't Hades, isn't Gehenna, and it's a word that's only used here. And it's, it's, it's Tartarus, essentially. Uh, it's a word that is the word for hell in Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, it was this underworld. So it's very similar to the Judaic conception of the afterworld, but it relates to a place where the giants are cast. The giants are going to be cast into this prison of chains. And so notice in verse 4, it's talking about God sparing not the angels, but casting them into this place. 
And then there's all these references in verse 5 and 6 to immorality and lot and stuff going on. And the only other place this is going on in the Bible is Genesis 6. And so in Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4, it says this. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth that the daughters were born unto them. The sons of God, B'nai Elohim, they saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. Nephilim is the word that's used. And also after that, the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men. So these angels, these B'nai Elohim, came in unto them, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Okay, so let's unpack this. Uh, the typical Latter-day Saint interpretation of this is the sons of, uh, the, the daughters of men are marrying outside the covenant. And that's, that's usually called the Sephite interpretation, where the daughters of Seth are marrying outside of the covenant and it's wreaking all kinds of havoc. And you can find a lot of Latter-day Saint commentators that talk about this. And that's good. And I like that. That's a great reading. But, and here's the big but, if you read First Enoch and you understand Peter's channeling this, this is a story that's very old. And what I'm about to say, you don't have to believe, but if you understand that the writers of the New Testament knew this story and they use it to, to a theological end, it will help stuff make sense. It's kind of like watching conference and you hear President Monson talk about Jean Valjean. Like you don't have to believe there was a guy named Jean Valjean, but if you don't know the story, the reference makes little sense. But once you know about the loaf of bread and Jean Valjean, you're like, oh, this is such a cool conference talk. So here it is. It's the idea that there were rebel angels came down, they made children with beautiful women, and they were a race of giants. These Nephilim, and these are bad. All through the New Testament, the Nephilim are bad. So if you ever read the Old Testament, so many times they describe, or if you remember when they come back from the report and they give the evil report, when they're checking out the land of Canaan, they say what, Rice? We can't do it. We can't succeed. Because <laughs> they're too hard. They're what's, too big. The giants are too big. Yeah, they're giants. We can't do it. And that's what's going on. Now, here's where it gets interesting. And this is like a third level to the text. The enemies of the Israelites were the Mesopotamians. And in, in, in these cultures, they believed that their kings were descended from giants. They believed that their kings were half God and half man, that they were Nephilim. And so from an Old Testament perspective, the writers of the Old Testament are issuing a polemic or an attack against their overlords that they're paying taxes to. And they say, your kings are giants? Well, in our holy book, the giants are demons. They're evil. They're horrible. And so for the rest of your life, whenever you read the Old Testament, if you understand Enoch, the Old Testament makes sense. And if you understand that, then Peter and Jude are going to be making sense because they're heavily quoting from Enoch. Now, here's where it ties into LDS theology. In Jewish literature, there's not one source of evil. There's the typical answer that most Christians acknowledge. There's the fall of Adam and Eve. But on the other side of the coin are the watchers, the fallen angels. That is another source of evil. Now, here's where it gets interesting for a Latter-day Saint. If you've ever been to the temple, you have to pay attention. But it's in Revelation 12. And it's in, if you really do a careful reading of 2 Nephi 9, it's in there too, where we read about a certain angel that says, no, I'm taking my toys and I'm going to rebel. And it's kind of clunky in Revelation. It talks about a dragon that drags a third part of the stars to the earth. But as Latter-day Saints, we see this as another story about evil. 
And so all of this is happening and it's happening in second Peter and it's an attack against their enemies. But then here's where we repackage it. We repackage these stories of individuals being in prison. And then we tie it in with Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison, which that verse is in first Peter. Yeah. First Peter. Yeah. Is it four? Four eighteen. Yeah. Four eighteen. For Christ has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. That's first Peter chapter three, eighteen and nineteen. And so and then again in chapter four, verse six. Yeah. So it's that same idea. Yeah. So that's happening and it's a little bit nerdy. Like I said, it'd be kind of difficult to teach. There's books on this. Uh, just know, really, all you got to do is read First Enoch 6 and then pick up the Old Testament. And then for the rest of your life, when you read about the enemies of the Israelites, they're, they're portrayed in these terms. And that's because the world in which they lived, they lived in this world. Now, do I, Mike Day, personally believe that angels came down from heaven and mated with beautiful women and made a race of giants? I, Mike Day, do not believe that. But if I want to understand the Old Testament, if I want to understand some of these texts, I need to know the world that they lived in. And so that's part of a good reading of text. Okay, um, should I do temple? Let's do temple. Yep. Okay, temple. <sighs> Strangers, very first verse. It's a unique uh, usage of that word. Parapademois. Uh, Parapademois, there we go. Parapademois, the word for stranger. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Peter's going to pick up the two of the three usages. I don't think it means strangers the way like barbaros, like barbarian in Greek uh, or a foreigner. I think he's using a different term. And so the, the third usage of that word for stranger is in Hebrews 11. And we all know it. If you read Hebrews 11, it's the faith chapter. And there's all these people. It's like the all stars of faith. And they all have such great faith um, that they do great things. And they have a relation with God, this relational faith. And at the very end of the text, and I think it's in verse 31. Oh, it's 13. I'm just going to read it. Hebrews 11, 13. Here it is. Paper is slow. Hebrews 11:13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced. Now notice, see the them? The verse reads, and embraced. And confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. My take on verse 1 is we're talking about a bunch of holy people that are strangers here on earth. And pilgrims, he adds later. Yeah. In chapter 2, strangers and pilgrims. Um, and one idea about that is, have we gotten so comfortable on this earth that we call it home? Or do we consider ourselves strangers because we're from a holier place? And you're doing it wrong. If you're comfortable here, I think Peter would say, you're doing it wrong. Because yeah. he says, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Right. You know, we are strangers on this planet. We are pilgrims on this planet because we are from a different place. I think we that's from what he's a saying. holier place. Yep. And I think that's where I'm getting this. I think this is temple. I yep. think you can read temple in this. Look at verse four of first Peter one to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away. And it's reserved for you in heaven. This is your inheritance and it's there. 
And I believe that Peter is channeling Psalm 2, Psalm 110, with this idea of adoption. Uh, in, in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, the text reads, Thou art my son. And in first temple Israelite religion, the king was made a son of God. And the invitation then to the people was, through covenant, we become his son. So this is relational. This is about Jesus making us his son, giving us an inheritance. And Bryce has already talked about it. But first Peter chapter one, verse 15 and 16 is a reiteration of Leviticus, 4, uh, Leviticus 11, 44 and 45 and Exodus 19, 15 and six, uh, five and six. So Here's what Leviticus 11.44 and Exodus 19.5 and 6 are both essentially saying. God saying to Israel, to you, I am holy. You need to be holy. And this is, this is Mike Day Midrash. I believe it though. God wants us to be holy because he's holy, because he wants to make us into what he is. And That's the theological implication. And the invitation is come out of the world you're living in. Come in, come out and be holy. So in ancient Israel, it was always come up to the mountain, you know, come up to the mountain. Yes. In our day, it's come into the temple. Yes. Come into the temple and be holy. And this is where you'll find me and we will embrace. Yes. And you will be with me. It's that invitation to be holy because I am holy. Yeah. I mean, just dead on. And so if you look at the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, what are we talking about? We're talking about birth. We're talking about being new. We're talking about verse two of chapter two, drinking the milk. And then verse four, verses four through eight in first Peter chapter two is metaphorical language about the temple. And it's not just here. It's in other places, the idea of a building and stones and God making you stones. And so to the listeners out there, I want you to picture in your mind a beautiful temple with all kinds of different stones and every stone matters. But in this vision that you have in your mind, Think of every stone being a person, and the temple isn't complete unless you're there. It's an invitation for you to come, and we're all this huge family, each of us a stone. And of course, think about the author. What's his name? His name, Peter. It's stone, right? It's Peter is the rock. But then Peter takes his hat off and tips it to Jesus and says, nope. Who's the real rock? Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the stone. And then the connection right after you build the house is verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood wearing royal garment, royal robes. Yeah. And so build the house, come into the house, be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Yeah. Just it's beautiful. There's stuff in there on divine nature, which is come into my presence. Be involved in the celestial embrace. Know that you're a stranger. I, you have to. If I was teaching this in a class, I would read verse nine of First Peter two. You have to. So good. Uh, so that it that that's a little bit of the temple of stuff that's going on. But think about what we talked about earlier with the spirits in prison. From Peter's perspective and from my perspective, I would say the temple is a beautiful cosmic image, as it were, where heaven and earth meet. And so in Latter-day Saint temples, under the ground, symbolically where the dead reside, whether you want to say Tartarus or Hades or the spirit world, that symbolic place is where the symbols of birth and life meet in the temple. Why? We're unlocking those gates. Who's the guy that was given the keys to do this? We're back to Peter again. We're back to the temple. Peter, through those keys, is unlocking the chains of hell. 
Which is why the temp, the baptismal fonts are always in the basement. It's beautiful. And by the way, think of what, what's the baptismal font. It's a bowl with water in it on top of a bunch of oxen. So I'm going to geek out for two seconds on Old Testament religion. But Abir Yaakov in, in uh, Genesis 49, that's the mighty God of Jacob. Abir Yaakov is the mighty bull of Jacob. A personification of God was the bull. And the bull with water is the woman. So the symbols of man and woman unified in this rebirthing process from an Old Testament perspective is awesome. It's like you're being reborn again with these Old Testament symbols and the modern man looks at it and is like, I don't understand this. And, oh, it's the 12 tribes. Yeah, sure, it's the 12 tribes. But we're talking about life and birth and and the dead are alive. So I would, I, I got to geek out on that stuff. That's good reading of the text. And so I love the multi-level punning of we've got Peter, stones, Jesus is the stone. We're building the temple. We're taking you back home and we're doing it on the road. And what's the road filled with? We'll just read First Peter 4. It's riddled with suffering and being reviled and reproached. And boy, just read it. It's just it's awesome. I, I love how we started off, Bryce, where you said, hey, what's the point of First Peter and Second Peter? And-, and the point is that suffering refines us. It makes us more like the Savior. And just like Peter, we're going to go through things that are going to be hard. And once again, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.